heard me say this before from behind this pulpit, that one of the things my seminary professors and my former pastor uh, used to tell me is as a preacher, which is not all pastors do, but it's a bulk of what we do. As a preacher, when you stand behind the pulpit, keep the kitchen out of the dining room. In other words, uh, don't talk about sermon prep while you're preaching. But sometimes I think that that, that's just kind of part of it. Um, When I started this week out, I had intended to preach uh, from the book of Isaiah. In fact, I spent three, almost four days on prep from a sermon from the book of Isaiah. And I had pages of research. I had whole surrounding chapters of Isaiah that I had been studying to get the exact context of the particular passage I was going to preach. And I had tons of stuff put together. And it was odd that out of all the research I had, it was like none of it would move to my preaching notes page. That I stared at my outline and I stared at my notes and I stared and stared and stared and stared and stared and finally figured out this is sermon block. And I felt real silly until about Thursday when I was talking with my my mom on my way to Augusta and my head popped up a little bit higher. I wasn't looking down. I was looking at the road. And I said, you know what? I'm silly. And she said, why are you silly? I said, I've experienced this before. I know what this is. And she said, what is it? I said, I spent four days working on a sermon that Jesus doesn't want me to preach. He's not helping me. That's why I can't get it to work. And she said, well, I guess you probably better find what he wants you to preach, hadn't you? I said, yes, yes, I should. And so the next order of business was, well, Jesus never leaves me high and dry. He's always been communicating to me through my thick head what he wants me to talk about all week long when that happens. And it's usually a question of how long it takes me to see it. So I started thinking back through my week. And it turns out that there were several conversations I had with several uh, other people, some of them pastor friends, some of them not, and several things that happened. And I'm going to communicate to you where we're going by telling you what my greatest source of illustrations, who happens to be named Margaret, did that made me think, oh my goodness, so many things this week have kind of dovetailed around this, um, that this led me to Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Um, y'all know, most of you around here, that a couple days a week, my mom usually comes to help me keep my daughter, um, or help me and Emily keep Margaret, um, not necessarily because we have to, but because we think that would be neat for her to spend time with her granddaughter. And my mom and I were standing in the kitchen having a chat about something. I don't even remember what it was. And Margaret wanted to get up, and she wanted to walk in there. Well, we didn't want her to come in the kitchen at that particular point in time. So Mama looked at her and said, Margaret... Sit down and stay sitting down until I tell you not to. So Margaret gives her this little angry look, pooches her lip out, goes, and sits down. So we keep talking. And the next thing we hear this. And we look down and she has extended her feet and is pulling herself while she's still sitting down into the kitchen. And she's laughing while she's doing it. And Mama said, Margaret, what did I tell you? And I put my hand up. I said, what did you tell her? 
Mama said, I told her to sit down and stay. I said, no, you told her to sit down and stay sitting down. She did that. You didn't tell her not to move. And Mama just kind of went. And she did it too. She pushed her lip out. And I just laughed because as mad as I was, I said, you know what? Inside this little child, she might be tiny, but y'all, she's a human being. And do you know that all of us as human beings share in common exactly what was in that little mind and heart in that moment? God, I know what you've told me to do. And I know it right down to the letter. And as long as I can justify that what I did meets just enough of those criteria, I can violate what you want me to do while simultaneously convincing myself I ain't done anything wrong. Y'all, she's, she's, she's 17 months old. And she is a perfect little legalist. I know none of y'all have ever struggled with legalism in your faith, have you? None of y'all? It's just me? Y'all, Margaret's 17 months old. And she can have someone tell her something to do and completely and totally violate the spirit of it and argue that she's keeping the letter. Now see, we don't grow out of it. We, learn it, we don't even learn it as kids. It's in us. And we don't grow out of it as we get older. We just get better at explaining it. That, well, actually, I studied my Bible and I found out that it actually doesn't mean I can't do this. You know, I've done a lot of research into what th this was in the ancient world, and I found out that it actually means this. So God certainly couldn't have meant, or maybe this is, well, the God I know, the God I believe in, He's a God of love. He wouldn't tell me I can't or they can't, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And we come up with reasons that God's law, God's word, didn't mean what it says. That's why Jesus was necessary. That's why the incarnation was necessary. So if you'll read, stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word, we're going to read two verses today. And I've been praying all day, Jesus, help me not to make the simple overly complicated. Because this is a really simple concept. But we still struggle to get it. Verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Father, I pray that You would give me power through Your Holy Spirit to speak of Your Son accurately and to not make the simple complicated. Help me to just say what it is You wanted me to say all week long. Jesus, I apologize for being so slow to pick up on it. And I pray that you would uh, give me the unction to, to do this the way you want me to do it. So in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so my sermon this morning's only got two points. It's only got two uh, because like most things that the church has struggled with for 2,000 years, it's a really simple concept. 
Uh, we as a church, me as a person, maybe me as a pastor sometimes, I tend to take overly simple things and make them more twisty-turny than they actually are. Uh, this is super simple. Um, Romans 8.3, uh, we find out that we are just, we are just predisposed to failure. Um, has anybody ever thought that about yourself? Uh, <laughs> I find that in myself sometimes, that I'm predisposed to failure. Now, I don't mean to say that at the beginning. Like it's a, I don't want you to get depressed over this and say, oh my goodness, we're just defeated from the get-go. No, I, just, I don't mean that. I mean that the Bible presents a standard, that God's law, God's morality presents a standard that in our current state, you're just not going to live up to. Look at what Paul says. Paul says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Now, let's break this down word by word. What is the law? Uh, the law formally, if you pull out your Bible and you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books, formerly that's what's called the law. The reason it's called the law is in those first five books, you are given both by explicit command and by example, God gave ancient Israel, these are the rules to live by. And they were all-encompassing, that it covered what you could eat. It covered where you could eat. It covered what you could wear. It covered where you could go. It covered how you could sell and buy land. It covered where you would live ancestrally. It covered forgiveness of sin. It covered uh, business deals. It covered loans. It covered, it covered everything. If there was a facet of your life that you lived, the law touched on it. But for the purposes of this sermon, because none of us in here... Uh, either right now that I know of. Now, if you are, you please talk to me afterward. I'd be very interesting to, interested to talk to you. To the best of my knowledge, nobody in here, either prior to becoming a Christian or currently right now having not become a Christian, no one is a practicing Jew, as far as I know. Okay, that's, uh, so for the purposes of this sermon, what I want you to think of the law is, is this. The law is a reason, and I'm going to read this because I very carefully worded this. The law is a reason that you either take action or refrain from taking action. Law explains which actions are moral or right or immoral, wrong, and mandates that moral actions should be taken or encouraged while immoral actions should be avoided or condemned. <clears throat> to put this in, in simpler terms, well... Think of a speed limit sign, right? The law is the reason that when you see that speed limit sign, you slow down or speed up when you get on the interstate because you know how fast you are allowed or how, how fast you're allowed to go, right? They, they, the law gives you the boundaries in which you know you, you are allowed to act. That... Certain laws encourage right action and certain laws discourage bad action. That's kind of the way, although on a higher level, that God's law act. That moral good is encouraged and mandated and immoral evil is discouraged or forbidden. <clears throat> so think anytime you think of a rule that tells you this is what good is or this is what bad is. That is law, okay? So maybe it's not the law, but maybe it was when you were four, your mama said you don't run in the church. 
Or you, you, wear, you wear your nicest clothes to go into God's house. Maybe it's something like that. That you were told this is a right, this is a wrong, good people do this, bad people don't do this, period. So, think of that as law. What the law could not do. Well, now this is interesting because whose word is this? This is God's word, right? And the law, biblically, is these first five books. Well, Paul just said that there was something the law, which is God's word, cannot do. Does that make you squirm in your seat just a little bit? That the Bible just said there's something that the Bible can't do. Or rather, the law specifically cannot do. Now, this presents us a problem. Now, this is not on your handout, but Isaiah 55, 11, some of you will be familiar with this verse. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth that shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing in which I sent it. That God explicitly said, when I speak, when I give my word, it is always going to accomplish what I set out for it to do. Right? God's word never fails. When God looks out from heaven and says, rain, it rains. When he looks at a sea and says, part, it parts. When he looks out at nothingness and says, let there be light, there is light. That when God speaks, things happen. So, why in the world does Paul say this word of God, this law can't do something? Well, I think there's a pretty good reason. If the law is not able to do something, that must mean what we want it to do is not what God intended it to do. What if I, looked at you, what if I handed you a flashlight and you started complaining to me that this flashlight can't start a fire? I took it camping with me. I got all these logs and you gave me this flashlight. And this flashlight won't light the logs on fire. Is it a defective flashlight? No. It's just not intended for that purpose. Same thing with the law. What can the law not do? What do we expect it to do? Scripture seems pretty clear in multiple places that the vast majority of Jews at the time believed obedience to or sometimes even the mere knowledge of the law is actually what made people righteous. In other words, they think that if you keep the rules good enough, that's what's going to make you a good person. Has anybody ever experienced Christianity that sounds like that? That if you work really hard and you do all the good things and you don't do all the bad things, then you get to be a Christian because that's what Christians are. They're good people who keep the rules. Anybody ever had Christianity presented to them that way? Oh, y'all are blessed then. If y'all had never had that happen to you, because it happens more time than not. In fact, I can remember, I saw a clip one time of, or it was actually a transcript of, of Jimmy Kimmel, you know, the late night host? Jimmy Kimmel? He, he was talking about Christianity with a guest he had, and, and he said, well, that's essentially what Christianity is, is that you follow the rules that God gave you in the Bible. And I just, the steam was coming out of my ears and my hair was catching on fire because I'm like, no, that's not what Christianity is at all. But that's what the majority of people think it is. 
including people in pews. That you follow the rules, and that makes you a good Christian person. If you break the rules, that makes you a bad person who's probably not a good Christian person. Well, look at what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23 and 24. This is on your handout. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That Jesus looks at the Pharisees. <clears throat> Actually, let's just continue. 23, 27, and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That if outward rule-keeping, rule-following righteousness was the order of the day, Jesus would have been praising the Pharisees. No one in the Bible was a better rule keeper than the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees, they get a bad rap a lot of the time. They probably began as a movement around the time of Ezra. Uh, because if you'll remember, if you, if you studied your Old Testament, the, the Israelite people, first the, the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom, they went into exile. They got taken out of the Holy Land. And while they were in exile, they said, you know what, guys? We're in exile because we didn't obey the law. So we're not going to do this again. One day God's going to take us back and we're going to obey the law. How do we know that we're going to obey the law? Well, because we're going to make rules to make sure we don't break the rules. That the law says don't work on the Sabbath. So we're going to make rules that constitute what is work. And we're going to make it so much harder that you'll never even get close to touching what God actually said. And so they made rules about the rules. And then they made rules about the rules about the rules. And if that sounds funny, it's because it is. But it's also true. And so the people got used to these Pharisees, these guardians of the law. They called it building a fence around the law. That if you can't cross the fence, you certainly can't cross the line. So they were respected. They were held up on a podium, man. These guys were pictures of moral perfection. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, full of all uncleanness, that were really good at following the little tiny ticky-tack rules, but missed the big things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. That they got everything on the outside right, but failed when it counted because everything on the inside was dead. Have you ever noticed that you can, you can fool people you ain't never had a day where you come to church where you dressed in your church clothes. You walk in the door, oh, bless God, it's good to see you, brother. Sister, I've missed you this week. Has the Holy Spirit been dwelling with you richly? And inside you're thinking, dear God, I don't want to be here today. I don't feel good. I'm hungry. I'm mad at what so-and-so did to me yesterday, but I'm going to be here because I'm going to be here. None of y'all? Nobody? 
You've never come to church just because coming to church was what you did. Sure you have. Sure you have. You can every single one of us has done that. Every single one of us has done that. That we're really good. And that's not, a, that's not me knocking you individually and personally. Y'all, humans, we're good at that. We're good at keeping outside external rules and keeping up appearances and doing the things that make it easy for people to believe we got everything figured out, everything's under control, everything's fine. That's what the Pharisees were good at. And Jesus called them out on it. You get everything on the outside, but you got nothing going right on the inside. And that's exactly what Paul says in the next part of the verse where he says that it was weak through the flesh. The law couldn't do what it set out to do because of our flesh. So what is it the law set out to do? If it can't make you righteous, it seems like the purpose, rather than putting righteousness into the hearts of men is to expose the unrighteousness that's already in there. Here is a major difference between Christianity and just about every other major world religion. Almost every other major world religion will tell you that humans are basically good and we, we, if we would just realize that, then we would stop being bad. Christianity, on the other hand, says human beings are basically evil. Because of what happened back in Genesis 3. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we will go to a God who can make us good. It's backwards. Which as far as the world is concerned is perfectly what you would expect. Because that's what Satan does. He turns things around. He turns them backwards. So the law is great at showing as righteous people who are already righteous. It's not good at all for making righteous people out of those who aren't righteous to begin with. Think of it like taking a test in school. Everybody in here has taken a test in school before. Some of y'all in here are the people who gave the tests. <laughs> y'all scared me. When you sit down to take a test in school, it's really great at showing whether or not you've already got the knowledge in you, right? Right? If you show up and you take the test and you know the stuff, it's going to come out. But if you show up and take the test and it's not already in there, the test doesn't do a real good job of putting it in you, does it? It's not designed to do that. It's designed to show whether or not it's already there. The same thing with the law. The law is not good at making you righteous. If you are a broke, busted, wicked person when you see the law, all the law is going to do is prove that to you. It's not going to make you good. Well, if I read the Bible, that'll make me a good person. No, it won't. It'll just tell you how bad of a person you are. <laughs> now, that's not all it'll do. There's a second part to the sermon. But just knowing what good is does not a good person make. The law cannot make somebody righteous who isn't. It can't make you something you're not. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Obedience to the law is impossible for you to the degree that is required of you. And it will do one of three things for you. Now listen, here's your application. All three of you. I don't mean that there are only three people here. I mean all of us in here 
fall into one of three categories when we hear the law preached. First, it will embolden you because you are so deluded by pride into thinking that you are actually keeping it. You are the type of person who is predisposed to believing you are truly good and you are insulted by anyone or anything that might suggest otherwise. As such, what you do with the law is look into it and bend the mirror until you see yourself. Kind of like one of those funhouse mirrors. Been the funhouse where they're the funky shaped mirrors and you get in front of them and you kind of do this until you see the you that you want. This leads to a judgmental and elitist attitude toward others who don't live up to the standard that you believe you already meet. And an inflexibility and lack of mercy towards those that fail to meet your expectations. This is the worst possible effect of exposure to the law. And the Pharisees experienced this. If you remember the parable where, the, where you've got two people who went to the temple courts, one was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector, and the Pharisee lifts up his hands in prayer and looks up to heaven and says, Father, thank you so much for not making me like other people, especially like that guy. That's this. That's this. So that's, that's possibility one. Possibility two is you read the law and it may depress you because you're very much aware that you don't live up to the standards of the law. You didn't believe for a second that you're a good person at your core and exposure to the law has confirmed your greatest fears. Panic sometimes ensues because you try to get serious about God and be more obedient and then find out that righteousness is no more in reach this time than it was the last time you failed. This is the second best possible effect of exposure to the law. Well, Josh, none of that sounded good. What do you mean it's the second best possible effect? I mean, at the very least... The law has done a job of getting you to see that you need someone. You need something. You need help. Because you've realized you can't do it yourself. So there might be you. But that's not a good place for you to stay either. I don't, the law, God doesn't want you to be prideful and think that you got everything figured out. But He doesn't want you to be depressed and defeated either. As if there is no hope. The best possible outcome is that it may lead you to the foot of the cross begging God to have mercy on you, a sinner. You might start at this step upon realizing you're a sinner. You may make stops at both or either of the other two outcomes before coming here. But the designed outcome of the law is that it will make us aware of our need for the mercy of God and lead us to a place where we have faith that God is good at His Word and all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, y'all, you can't get saved before you get lost. Until you realize that you don't have everything you need in yourself and that you need the mercy of God and you need the grace of Jesus and you need the blood of His cross, you will never look for it. It takes a broken and contrite heart to go to God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because if you don't think you're a sinner, you will never ask Him to forgive you. That all of us, every single one of us, pastor, deacons, ushers, committee chairmen, anybody in this church, every single one of us is predisposed to failure when it comes to keeping the moral expectations of God. All of us. 
But God doesn't intend for you to stay in that failure and stay in that defeat. Say, Pastor, this is not a very Christmas message. Oh, yes, it is. Point two. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Why was it that God sent His own Son? It's because we were unrighteous lost people. We were wicked. We could not keep the law. It could not make us righteous. The law cannot make you something you're not. That's what God designed it to do. Jesus, on the other hand, was sent by the Father with the express purpose of making us something that we're not. That flashlight might not be able to light those logs on fire, but you know what? A starter log and a butane lighter will. The law with the flashlight meant to shine on you and illuminate you so that you can see everything that God says, listen to me, dear child, you're broken, you must be fixed. And the light shows you the breaks, it shows you the fault lines, it shows you the loose screws and the bent nails and the splintered wood. And what happens is Jesus comes in and says, now that you can see it, let me fix you. He's the only one that can That God did Himself what the law could not do. And it says Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He came with flesh like ours, but not with our sinful flesh. He came because of our sin, not with it. He came like us because of us. That when we see that nativity scene, when you see that little baby in that manger, when you remember that, when you sing the Christmas carols, you know, what child is this who laid to rest and Mary's lap is sleeping? You know, Joyce was playing my absolute favorite Christmas song before we started today, Mary Did You Know? I mean, I can't hardly even think the lyrics of that song without crying. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Of of course, you know, Mary Mary learned these things as she went on, that she knew that she was bearing the Christ child. She didn't know everything that he would do and everything that he would endure. But the last line of that song, Mary, did you know that the sleeping child you're holding is the great I am? The absolute wonder and awe of the infinite goodness, mercy, and power of God contained in a little tiny human infant in a manger stall in a backwater city called Bethlehem. He came in human flesh, y'all. Let it blow your mind again. And then when you say, why would he do this? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. Whose? Not his. Mine. On account of my sin. On account of your sin. On account of their sin. 
on account of all of our sin. From the greatest sin to the least little tiny sin. That's why he came. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That Christ came fully human, but without sin. But do you know that He's experienced every temptation you have? Every single one of them. That He can relate to you. In anything you've ever been tempted, Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. That Jesus never buckled. The moral perfection that we cannot meet because we have fallen human flesh. Jesus starts the human race over with flesh that's never been broken by sin. He kept the law and the moral perfection that we could not keep. That the flesh that Christ took on Himself in the incarnation, that pure, undefiled, sinless flesh, allows Him to bear the condemnation for our sin. Something that could have never been done by someone who was less than human. Because Jesus was a human like us, He could stand in for us. The the Bible word for that is propitiation. One who was given in our place so that we could live and not die. Our sin was not ignored. It was condemned. Our sin was not forgiven with no punishment. Jesus bore the punishment for Himself that allowed us to be forgiven by the Father. That we are predisposed to failure. Jesus is victory incarnate. Y'all, this is real simple. If you ever find Christianity miserable to you, if you ever find it a drudgery in which you are tired of rule keeping and expectation living up to and rote memorization of orders that things are done in and doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, you have forgotten the core of who we are. We're not a bunch of rule keepers. If we're a bunch of rule keepers, we're real bad at it. Amen? If all your faith is to you is rule keeping, that's not faith. That's not Christianity. That's the opposite of Christianity. What is Christianity? What is faith in Jesus Christ? It's saying, I can't keep the rules. I never could keep the rules. But Jesus kept them for me. That I am a child of God by grace, not by effort. That I'm adopted and loved and yes, even liked by God. Bless him. I know you've heard somebody say, I love him. I just don't like him right now. Not only does God love you, he also likes you. Did you know that? Do you know that God's proud of you? That you are the peak of His creation? That you bear His image? That you're worth enough to Him that He was willing to let Jesus die for you? Why would a God who loves you that much and who would go that far to show grace to you, why would He not 
Why would he be tired of you? Why would he not want anything to do with you? You know, sometimes when you, when you preach and you, you, you tell people come to Christ, sometimes the Bible does you, you know, say, well, why would you ever try and scare somebody into heaven? Well, easy answer. The Bible does sometimes. Um, is that Jesus did not intend to describe hell as an encouragement. He describes hell as a discouragement. But do you know what? Sometimes, y'all, the Bible encourages you to come to Christ by saying, hey, why would you not want to come to a God who loves you like that? Why would you not want to come to a God who has given you this? Look at the lengths he's willing to go to. Now, if that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what does. If that doesn't get you hyped up for Christmas, I don't know what will. Romans 3, 23 through 26. <clears throat> for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that verse, right? But what about after it? Being justified freely through His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That Christmas is a happy time because God said, I will show you how I can be both righteous in condemning and punishing sin and gracious in letting you live even though you sinned against me. It's not that God did not punish our sin. It's that He punished Jesus for our sin so that we could go free. Does that bring you joy? Does that bring you enthusiasm? Or have we lost the wonder? Because Stapleton, let me tell you this. You honestly, you've got a choice right now um, 